right, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Bourbon Showdown podcast. My name is Jesse Jones, and on the program today, we have Dan Garrison of Garrison Brothers Whiskey. Dan is a very smart man. I want to thank him for taking the time out to speak with us today. He really is a wealth of knowledge on bourbon, the bourbon industry, not only its creation, but I think the big picture. Like a lot of times when people talk about bourbon, they talk about how they make it. I think Dan has really gone the extra step to look into how it gets, not only how it gets produced, but the logic that goes into the marketing behind it and the bigger picture of state laws and how flawed some of them are in terms of whiskey distribution. So we we do tackle the normal conversation of distilling. We do talk about distribution, but we really, I think the beauty of this conversation is when we touch on some of the state laws that go into whiskey distribution. I think that there are a lot of things going on right now that could be done better, and so does he. So a lot of the meat of this conversation is us diving into that. It's a very interesting talk. I I thoroughly enjoyed speaking with him and thank him for his time. It was eye-opening to say the least some of the practices that are still taking place and some of the laws that are still in effect as it pertains to the whiskey game so thank you dan for being on the program we want to thank all of you for tuning in uh go find us on social media go find us on instagram at bourbon showdown find us on youtube at bourbon showdown on facebook at bourbon showdown basically if you look up bourbon showdown you're looking at us so give us a click give us a like do whatever you need to to make you sleep good at night. Also, click subscribe on the old podcast button there. If you're listening to us on Apple, hit subscribe. You can find us on Spotify. You can find us literally wherever podcasts are. It it is uh, a wonderful thing being a part of this, and I'm thoroughly enjoying it. So thank you guys for the continued support. Hope you had a wonderful New Year. I know we did. We had a phenomenal Christmas and New Year. Just got to unwind a little bit. So find us and like us. Hit subscribe. We want to thank Will Jones again for all of the music that you hear at the beginning of each episode and in the background of the episodes. He is a phenomenal guitar player, and if you ever get a chance to see him live, please do so. But for right now, this week's episode is here, everybody. We've got another episode of the Bourbon Showdown Podcast. This is Dan Garrison of the Garrison Brothers Whiskey. Enjoy, everybody. Enjoy the show. Well, let's get started. Uh, thank you so much for uh, being on the show today, sir. I'm delighted, Jesse. This is going to be fun. I'm looking forward to it. As we've gone through the whiskeys of America so far, and and there's one state that has just stood out, and that would be Texas. And you guys are the first and foremost uh, whiskey of Texas. Well, that makes me really proud. Um, I've watched so many of my colleagues down here get started and, and it's funny because they they would all the first step in starting a bourbon distillery in Texas is to come to Garrison Brothers and ask Dan Garrison how to do it. <laughs> that makes me feel very proud because I feel like I've had a big influence on the growth of the whiskey business in Texas. And uh, and I agree with you. I think that, that what's coming out of Texas right now is just startling. Even for some distilleries that literally are a few years old, they're they're making some juice that just blows my mind. Um, we continue to try to lead, but boy, are they catching up to us fast. 
Well, I mean, in 2015, you guys were the only game in town, weren't you? Like the first legal distillery in Texas? We were. I think uh, Chip Tate came along next in Waco and, and started Balconies. And then after that, it was the guys at Ranger Creek down in San Antonio. And I may have these numbers wrong, but I think Ranger Creek down in San Antonio started next. And then after that, it was Iron Root Republic all the way up in, in uh, Denton, Texas, or you know, Denison, Texas, excuse me. And those guys, the, the stuff they're making, Iron Root Republic is just mind blowing. It's so good. And it's only, I think, three or four years old. But boy, it's astounding how quickly they've become a powerhouse down here. Well, and you're already exhibiting what makes a good uh, bourbon community. You are a community of distillers. Like the, everything you just said was raising up the other distillers in the area and, and promoting them as well as yourself. I mean, that's what you need to, to be recognized is to spread the love, you know? We have such a strong nucleus here that we've actually formed the Texas Whiskey Association, which certifies various brands as to their originality, their authenticity, um, their use of Texas grown grain. Um, so, so yeah, we've got a great little organization over there. We just started the Texas um, Distilled Spirits uh, Political Action Committee. So suddenly some funds are rolling in so we can help change these ridiculous liquor laws that exist in the state. Hey, I'm in North Carolina, so I completely relate when it comes to ridiculous liquor laws. Oh, boy, I bet you are. Good Lord. We get, we get a purchase order from North Carolina for like one case at a time. We're like, if they would just order 20 cases, this would be so much cheaper for them and so much more efficient. But, you know, it's hard to ship one case on a big 18-wheeler truck at, at a uh, price that makes any sense to the consumer. That's exactly right. And everything is still, uh, it's a controlled state, so you can't go to the liquor store, you've got to go to the state run liquor store and all of the allocated problems that come with such a practice. So I, I hear you on that. Uh, when, but I, I, we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. Uh, uh, what broke you into whiskey in the first place? Like, could you give me a little history on Garrison brothers? Sure. Um, let, let me first talk about my love of whiskey. I was a Jack Daniels drinker like everybody else in high school and in well, even in junior high, but that we don't need to state that on the record. Um, <laughs> but I, so I was a Jack Daniels drinker. And then I started um, during my, my college years, I was running out of money to pay for college. And so I started bartending on 6th Street in Austin, Texas, at a huge club that was called Anchovies. This was back in the early 1980s. And they had a pretty wicked whiskey selection. And uh, they, you know, they had W.L. Weller, they had Blanton's, I believe, and they had Jack Daniels and they had Jim Beam. And when I upgraded after after a shift of bartending, three o'clock in the morning, I would try something new. And I tried the W.L. Weller 12-year-old and I went, holy shit, what, who, who's been hiding this shit from me? Right, and right. I, that was kind of my first, um, that was the first time that I was in, engaged in, in a, a new brand of bourbon whiskey because I had been so consistently drinking that crap for so long. Um, excuse me, guys at Jack Daniels Brown Forum, I'm, I'm not calling it crap. Back then it was crap. It's great today. Anyway, um, <laughs> I, 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 when I, the W.L. Weller experience opened my eyes to what good bourbon could be. And then my first trip to the great state of Kentucky was in 2003. And there oh my God, you could go into some of the places in Bardstown or, or you could go to the, the, the 
hotels in Kentucky that would just, the Brown building would just blow your mind as to what the selection they have. They have over 300 bottles and most of those bottles never made it outside the great state of Kentucky. And so Kentucky for me was, was, was bourbon uh, heaven. And like I, Willy Wonka in the chocolate factory. Exactly. Every time I'd go to Bardstown, I'd go to that little liquor store there behind the uh, seal, not the seal box, but behind the, um, uh, the, the, the old jail and um, I'd buy a new bottle of something. And I first was introduced to the Willet whiskeys that Drew Colesveen and his family that were making at Kentucky bourbon distillers. And then I got introduced to some, some rare things. I was also informed of the fact that Woodford Reserve uh, tasted very similarly to Old Forester, but cost $7 more a bottle. And uh, so I started looking, learning some of the ins and outs of Kentucky then. The real breakthrough uh, for me, was losing my job when I was 40 years old. I was uh, working in the software business. I was a director of marketing or vice president of marketing for a software company in Austin. And um, Enron went belly up. And when Enron went belly up, we lost all of our jobs. Uh, 12,000 Texans lost their jobs in one day. Oh, and wow. my business was bankrupt overnight because we built the software that ran the, the Enron uh, trading exchange. So all of a sudden, when it came out that it was fake, that those earnings that they were reporting quarter after quarter after quarter were fake, that changed my world because suddenly I had to figure out what I was going to do next to support my family. That's a scary place to be. There's a lot of people right now that are experiencing the same thing with this coronavirus. I think uh, your story is it, that can be a blueprint for others that are looking to, if you've been laid off and you need to move forward with something, you just look to your passion, which was whiskey. That's a, that's great advice. And God bless those poor folks out there that are struggling through this. I, I think about them all day long about what we can do to help. And, and we, we, we've actually have helped in, in many ways. We've um, given out about $400,000 through sales of our bourbon to laid off our furloughed bartenders, chefs, um, waiters, servers, um, kitchen folks. We, we've, we've tried to take care as best we can of our industry and the hospitality industry during these tough times. It's a hard one. I mean, uh, I'm, a, I'm a comic, so it's really hard to get out on stage when you're not allowed to have more than 10 to 25 people in the audience, you know? Oh, I didn't realize that about your background. Very interesting. I, I, can, oh, yeah. I can see exactly what you mean. That must be hard. Well, uh, similar to yourself, I was in marketing for years. Um, I not for software uh, ad agencies and retail companies. I actually came to know the Hill Country pretty good when uh, I was the lead on the Boot Ranch account. Uh, so I've I've been all over the area. It's a gorgeous, gorgeous area, Hill Country. Sure. My son and I were fortunate enough to be able to play the course at Blue, uh, Boot Ranch. Uh, one of the members over there, I gave him a bottle and I said, you know, any chance my son and I could get out and hit some balls? And he arranged for a private 18-hole uh, private uh, game for us. So I think my son was 13 at the time and it has kind of inspired his love for golf. That's awesome. They were always great people to work for. And uh, especially when you've got a lot of land like that right there, you, you really, you can soak in the experience pretty easily because it's, it's all encompassing over there. Such a beautiful place. Wow. So you've, um, Enron did what Enron did and you found yourself with a question of, of what to do next. Yep. And I was reading a newspaper article one night with my wife and she's a vodka drinker. And the story on the, in the 
newspaper was about another vodka company that was going to release a new vodka called Savvy. And that was to compete with Tito and, and pre-existing uh, Dripping Springs Vodka. They were the first two to get a, a, a permit in Texas. And then Paula's Texas Orange. She used to make a limoncello and an orange cello. Uh, Paula was the third permit in Texas. And I think we were number four. Um, but my wife, I, I was giving her shit because she drinks a lot of vodka. And I said, why would someone make vodka instead of making bourbon that actually tastes good? Right. It has some flavor back, to it. She came back with this response. She said, oh, as much of that stuff as you drink, maybe we should make bourbon. We'd probably save money. And I went, wait a minute. Are you giving me the green light to go to Kentucky? And basically she did without knowing she was doing that. <laughs> All great ideas come from wives that didn't know what they were getting themselves into. Yeah, that's true. She's uh, in now, though. Well, well, you guys, she, she made the right call sending you to Kentucky. So you go to Kentucky and you basically camp out, right? Yeah. Um, the, the first week I went, I, I toured all nine of the bourbon distilleries that were in Kentucky at the time. And those nine distilleries were producing maybe 35 different brands of bourbon back in 2003. Bourbon at that time was granddad's drink. It wasn't what people drank anymore. Bourbon right. had uh, brown spirits in general uh, were sinking, were diving, and vodka and gin and rum were, were excelling because it was a cocktail culture that was being developed. And you can make it's easier to make cocktails with the, the white liquors than it is to make it with the brown liquors. Um, that's not the case today, of course, obviously. So I was really in the right time at the wrong, at the right place. If I had started this adventure two years earlier, we wouldn't be talking right now because I'd be on a billion, I'd be a billionaire on a boat out in the Caribbean. Um, and I would have made a boatloads of money. But unfortunately, I started my first, I stole my first bottles in 2010. So I missed, uh, I missed the, the wave of, of bourbon sentiment by about two years. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's crazy how it went. It came back because it was, you couldn't give the stuff away 15 years ago. Yeah. And what's crazy is it's coming back at the super premium end of the segment, which mm -hmm. is us. Uh, we're leading across the country where the, the highest um, sales of any super premium bourbon at every total wine and more store across the country right now. So it's been great growth and they've been a great partner. I uh, love all the Texas retailers that have stocked my bourbon since day one too, but wow, the sustained growth of total wine is, is amazing. Total Wine has become uh, a hidden gem. It, it wasn't always the case, but if you're in a town that has a Total Wine, uh, so far, apparently, this episode has been sponsored by Boot Ranch and Total Wine. Um, <laughs> That's great. I'm not getting money from either one of those, so Total Wine, you're welcome. Um, but you really can get some good stuff there. Uh, every time I'm in a town that has one, because North Carolina, Total Wine just sells wine, bit of a downer. But you go out, else, elsewhere outside the state, you can get some good shit. Yeah, for sure. So you, you camped out in Kentucky and, and you literally just like absorbed everything that you could, right? Like you just, you taking notes and, and picking people's brains and you knew what you were trying to accomplish. The good Lord wanted me to make bourbon. And I know that, uh, the good Lord introduced me to a young lady named Teresa McCannich. Her nickname is Mac. And she was the former director of marketing at Buffalo Trace. And she had just moved to Texas about the same time that I was starting this great adventure. 
And a friend of a friend of a friend told her to call me up and see if she could help me in any way since she was in Texas now and she no longer worked for Buffalo Trace. And she said, you know, if, if you're headed back up there, I'd love to introduce you to some of the important people in the industry that you need to know. And I said, Matt, I'm all over that. And we stayed in some shitty ass hotel room. Well, we had two two rooms, of course. But she introduced me to uh, Max Shapira at Heaven Hill, um, Bill Samuels at uh, Maker's Mark. She introduced me to Craig Beam. Um, I got to meet uh, Harlan Wheatley and Elmer T. Lee. Good all Lord. Yeah, I know. I met. I met these gentlemen who were, were my legends, the people that I so looked up to, and I found them to be so candid and so humble about what they do. Uh, Jimmy and Eddie Russell, for example, it was just amazing. And uh, they they kind of took me in. And what I would do is when I got home from Kentucky, I would send up cases and cases of Salt Lake barbecue to whoever had uh, showed me around at whatever distillery I was visiting. And I made some Brilliant. friends along the way. And um, went to Vendome Brass and Copper Works to survey the copper market to understand what a still might cost, um, what what type of stills I needed, and the the um, the family there is just fantastic, and they, they they've been big helps helpers along the way. Um, Vendome has been a great resource for us. We've bought all of our four stills. One, two, three, four from Vendome. And now we have a 2000 gallon pot still, which I think is one of the largest pot stills in, in the Western U S and we call that one, the big Johnson. <laughs> of course. Why, why wouldn't you, why wouldn't you? Yeah. It's, it's in reference to Lyndon Baines Johnson who grew up two miles away from our distillery. He was about six foot four. Oh, wow. So, so literally a big Johnson, a big Johnson. Yeah. <laughs> So you you get your recipe together and now you've got uh, another problem because Texas was not allowing people to distill whiskey at that time. Is that correct? Yeah, it, Texas wasn't preventing it. It was just that no one had ever asked to, to distill whiskey in Texas. And the way the liquor laws are written in Texas, it's if unless it says in the Texas Alcoholic Beverage Code that you can make whiskey in Texas, then it's assumed that you can't. It's, it's the craziest legislation on planet Earth. If TABC doesn't bless your effort, then you can't do it, which makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. We're, we're entrepreneurs. We're trying to increase the industry. We're trying to create greater tourism to Texas. We get... 20,000 people a year who come to my distillery from somewhere else in the country. Um, and for Texas not to look at the liquor business as a growth industry, but instead to try to um, put a cap on what can be produced or how much can be produced or where it can be produced or how it can be sold is ridiculous. Um, we, we've got 64 employees today around the country. Uh, we're one of the highest paying in industries in, the, in, in, in America and all of our ABCs, the Alcoholic Beverage Commissions in each individual state, need to wake up and realize that it's no longer 1933 and we're not trying to cap production, we're not trying to cap sales, it's good for the state. The amount of taxes I pay to the state of Texas each year is, is ridiculous. And they need to look at it as a growth industry as opposed to this demonizing, immoral um, uh, business. It's not that way. It's good people doing good things. 
Exactly. It's not a hundred years ago where you're at the end of prohibition and you're just putting stuff in a law book so that it can be there. It, it, it's the problem with a lot of these laws that go back that far is people get hung up on the fact that it's already a thing and they can't have a conversation about whether or not it should have ever been a thing to begin with. They have to like start and, and work against themselves to get up to the uh, starting line almost. Yeah, there, there are, are industry associations that protect the families and the wealth of these mafia families um, from destruction. Because uh, let me put that in perspective. What product do you currently know of that you cannot buy on the Internet directly from the producer? Right. Anything? Right. Uh, you you can see the one out there except alcohol. Mm-hmm. You can put random words together and you can find it online. Exactly. And then for you guys, for your industry, you have to jump through a third party hoop and pay much more than you would if it was coming straight from your distillery. You've got to go through, you know, I'm not going to name anybody because they're making a living too, but it would be a lot simpler if you could just set up an e-com presence for yourself and go straight to the consumer and not have to go through a third party. Yes, it would. The three-tier system I understand the reason for the three-tier system, but it's not 1933 or 1935 anymore. It's the real world. And if you want to compete with Amazon or if you want to compete with Walmart, you need to be go, you need to have the ability to go sell direct to your consumer. Um, exactly. And everybody else is able to. It's sort of ridiculous that you're not able to. Yeah, and there's there's a whole percentage of the population right now due to this pandemic that's holed up in their house. And they can't buy anything. They can't go out. They've got to order online. So how, how is the problem solved by creating a fifth tier of the, the, the direct consumer sales from the liquor store to the consumer? That's ridiculous. So now by the time the consumer gets that bottle of Garrison Brothers bourbon, it's been jacked up 150% in price. And that's just not fair. And consumers should get pissed off about it and they should do something about it. Well, it's a hard line because a lot of us ABC states, you just say thank you for what you can get almost because what's the what's the point in arguing and then pissing off the guy at the ABC store who hides it from you the next time you walk in? Exactly. It, it needs uh, legislation to come from a higher place, but you can't create that change unless you let somebody know you're mad about it to begin with. So it's got to start somewhere. Regulation like this is corrupt and regulation like this creates a huge black market for bourbons, especially mm -hmm. rare bourbons, especially like mine. Um, I know a couple of websites I can go to and I can find any bottle of Garrison Brothers I want for $6,000. Right. But, um, that's a black market and it's illegal. And, but it, it exists and, and the regulators need to wake up and realize that and the legislators need to wake up and realize that. Well, it's that thing where everybody's getting their pockets padded a little bit too, you know? Yeah, frustrating. It's very frustrating. Like the ABC store, they would lose their control over the market and they would stop being able to source, you know, their pockets with it if they were to let it run the way it does in non-control states. Well, in states like North Carolina, where you are, um, I can't even sell my product, meaning I can't. I, the way I sell it is to get my liquid to lips. Right. You got to be able to taste it. So if I go to a, an ABC store in North Carolina, they're not going to let me set up a table and hand out samples. That's ridiculous. We can't do it. And if you can't sample it, why would you invest $80 in a bottle of bourbon if you can't even taste it? Well, that's a hard thing for people. I mean, I can, you have to 
I got my first bottle of Garrison Brothers because somebody recommended it. I think word of mouth has a lot to do with sure. something you've never tasted before. But at the same time, there's that moment where you're like, how much do I trust Chris before I put down 80 bucks on something that I've never even smelt? <laughs> sure. I completely understand. It's very frustrating. And, and it's time to modernize this industry. It's, it's way overdue. And consumers know it. But they're so accustomed to just going to the liquor store and buying a bottle that they don't think twice about it. And, and it's hard to wake up the, the sleeping giant, but we really need to figure out a way to do it. A hundred percent. And you would have thought that maybe COVID could have helped open the eyes a little bit, because like you just said, you've got everybody trapped in their house. It, it seems like it would be uh, a ready time to make that change so that you could you could make a case that it's safer by you sending a bottle of Garrison Brothers to my house. You have prevented me from going out and interacting with other people and possibly spreading the thing. There's all sorts of ways to spin that so that it's good for the uh, it's good for the country to make it make liquor available to everybody without a third party. Sure. I had a, I had a wonderful lunch yesterday. I was doing a, a zoom call, a, a zoom tasting with a, a rotary club from a particular uh, Florida city. And I won't say who the rotary club was because they did something online that would seem perfectly normal and perfectly rational to normal humans. But I knew in my head that it was totally illegal. They pulled up a bottle of Laguna Madre my, my eight-year-old bourbon, which is aged for four years in white American oak and then four years in a limousine oak cask. And it runs about $299 a bottle when you buy it from our liquor store. And we sold all 1,200 bottles we had available on the release day. We had 219 trucks uh, lined up in front of my ranch to come in and get their bottle by six o'clock in the morning. Some of them had showed up and spent the night in their trucks overnight. And so somehow, some way, this Rotary Club got their hands on two bottles of Laguna Madre. I don't know who bought it. I don't know how they bought it. Maybe it was on the black market, but they had it. And they auctioned it off for charity. And they raised somewhere in the neighborhood like $3,000 by auctioning off these two bottles. That's illegal. Yeah. Why is that illegal? Why is it, it illegal to do good things with whiskey? It's the same thing we were just talking about uh 50 years ago 100 years ago people were doing stuff like that and somebody said that you were spreading corruption by spreading alcohol blah 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 cut to today i bet that's a law from 75 years ago yeah i was at a, a event in texas they call it texas lyceum which is really cool they bring together these really big thinkers about 200 people are members of the texas lyceum and they asked me to speak on a panel and I sat, sat around and listened for uh, some of the other speakers. And one of them represented the wholesalers, um, the, the liquor wholesalers. They, he was their lobbyist. And another one represented the package stores here in Texas, the retail stores that sell liquor. And they actually believed what they were saying when they said, it's our job to control consumption. What, explain that, control consumption. They actually believe that their ability to sell liquor um, controls how much consumers drink of, of whiskey or vodka or rum. That's they the dumbest thing believe, I've ever heard. They actually believe that that's their responsibility to do that. That's part of their role in the industry. And I'm sitting here thinking I'm surrounded by all these liquor producers. I'm surrounded by all these retailers at this conference. And they're actually telling us that we're going to stifle the economy. That's our job is to stifle the economy, to make sure that that uh, people can't get all the liquor they want to get, because that would be a dangerous society. And then one guy said, um, 
one of the one of the lobbyists actually said uh, distilled spirits is much more dangerous than beer or wine in in terms of consumption. And I'm looking at him going, alcohol is alcohol, whether it comes in the form of a beer or it comes in a, a glass of wine or whether it comes in a, a, a shot of bourbon whiskey. Alcohol is alcohol. Alcohol is the, the what what might hurt someone, and consumers know that they are 100%. aware that they can get they can drink too much and they're cautious about it and they're responsible about it. And it's just, it's just crazy to me that the industry itself is stifling the growth of businesses in, in this industry. You know, we can get off the subject. <laughs> no, no. I, I, I think that's fascinating. I, I, and again, it takes, uh, it takes Texas. It takes a big personality to be able to speak up and say, this makes zero sense because there's so many people just happy to go along with it. Status quo, you know, uh, that's no, we can keep talking about this all day long. I, I think the idea that you're going to temper what people buy, like that's your job is ridiculous. You get rid of all of the alcohol in the country. You're, you'll see exactly what happened last time. You'll see people selling it on the black market. And then if you take away all of it, if you say we can't produce alcohol, there'd be people sniffing glue in a parking lot. The people that want right. to get fucked up are going to get fucked up. You know what I mean? Well, the best example of that is COVID and Pennsylvania. Uh, Pennsylvania Liquor Control Board decided that the best way to handle this COVID situation was to shut all the liquor stores so that nobody could get access to alcohol. So they shut them all down for like three months. All the liquor stores were closed. And then they had to set up patrols at each border to the neighboring states because the consumer in Pennsylvania would drive to the neighboring state, buy the alcohol and bring it back. And the, 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 the Pennsylvania Police Department police departments and sheriff's departments were actually pulling cars over, searching their vehicles for alcohol. And, and it's illegal to, to cross state lines in Pennsylvania with alcohol in your car. So how do you get it? You can't order it online because it's Pennsylvania. You can't go to a liquor store and get it. But hey, I'm sorry, but I needed a damn drink during COVID. And if I'm Most definitely. Like if, if there's anybody in Pennsylvania like me, I'd be pretty pissed off at my liquor control board because they're the ones that are making that decision and they, they should speak up and they should get rid of that liquor control board and open up a free market economy in that state. I, I, I agree with you a hundred percent. So if anybody's listening to this, what would be the best way to facilitate that change? Cause you got to go past your city commissioners. You've got to go up to like the state level, don't you? Yeah. It's a state legislation issue. All, all liquor, uh, distribution in the United States is controlled by the state uh, state house. Well, there you go. I think uh, people that at least gives them a starting point. If you're upset with the way your state's running your uh, your alcohol sales, then go to the state legislature and let them know they got to listen to you. And their emails are online; it's all posted. And you know what happened the last time that they, um, if I remember correctly, uh, you take everybody's liquor away, you get the shining. Like, like, like the coronavirus was not the time to, uh, to take people's internet or alcohol away. Yeah. You want a whole bunch of people making their own liquor and killing themselves off the methanol or the ethyl carbamate? Uh, that's what you're going to get. I um, mean, prohibition was, when prohibition was put in place, there were um, 2,000 alcohol poisoning deaths a year. By five years into prohibition, that had risen to 20,000 alcohol poisoning deaths a year because people were making their own juice and they didn't know what they were doing. Right. I mean, same logic that went into the Bottled and Bond Act had people either passing off subpar or poisonous juice. And that was making people sick or ripping people off. Yeah, exactly. So 
<laughs> more politics. We're no, no. With- I love that you're passionate about it, though. Uh, I, I see a, um, a a garrison for governor of Texas in the in the works here. I don't think so. I don't think they'll let me in. <laughs> So, but okay. So we'll go back to it. Uh, uh, you, that is awesome that you're passionate about that though. It really, it really comes through that you care about what you do. And, uh, that, I think that's what you need in this industry to be successful is to care about what you do. And from day one, it seems like you have, uh, when you guys opened up in 2015, it was the first legal distiller, which I think the word legals, it's almost fun to read it because you know, people in Texas have been distilling whiskey, forever just just this was legal and you were selling it and you got it the government to let you do it what did you have to do to be allowed to distill whiskey uh did you have to overturn that backwards law from a long time ago or did they just need to bless you well again there there wasn't any law in the books that said you could not make whiskey in texas it was more that nobody had ever tried to do it so i actually took um i i sent a note to uh, the Texas Alcoholic Beverage Commission director at the time. And I said, hey, I want to make bourbon. Can I take you to lunch and find out how I go about that? And I had learned simultaneously that you have to first apply for your federal distilled spirits permit before you can even apply for the state permit. And then when you apply for the state permit, with the federal permit in hand, you've already had the federal government bless your distillery or bless your bottles, uh, what they're going to look like, what they're going to say. That has to come first. And then you go to the state level, and the state level is even, takes an even longer amount of time because you have to get the county commissioners in your county to bless the the, the, per, the permit for the distillery. Wow. So it goes down to the local county level as well. I mean, for, in Texas, there are still dry counties in, in Texas where you cannot buy, produce, or consume alcohol anywhere in the county without another permit that allows you to be go to a private club and drink it. So that still exists today. And it's just nothing more than a hangover from prohibition. Um, it's ridiculous today and everybody knows it. Same in North Carolina. Like, uh, once those laws have been slowly revoked county by county, it's interesting to watch how all of those, like, workaround clubs like your Elks Lodges and things like that, that really, that's why they were open. You would drop the kids off at the pool and then you would go to the bar and it's the only place that you could get whiskey in the town, you know? And now that they've removed a lot of those laws, you see those things kind of uh, closing down a little bit. Uh, So you get it, you get your permits and you're allowed to start distilling, uh, but you still had... Before anything got produced, you had another hurdle. Uh, Mother Nature started working against you a little bit, didn't she? Yeah, yeah. Um, one of my friends, uh, my late, the late Dave Pickerel, uh, who was the master still at Maker's Mark for about 15 years, and he and I became very close during this process because he was so incredibly helpful to me and so inspired that I was actually going to try to do this. Um, he pointed out that... Uh, uh, aging a a bourbon in Texas might have some good effects or might have some bad effects. Um, I was told by one distiller at Buffalo Trace that they thought that the heat, uh, you know, it was 110 degrees in Texas, that the heat might create wood, um, wood ethanol which is methanol, which is toxic. And, and um, so I didn't know what I was heading into, but I was sure as hell going to try it. And I produced a couple of barrels. I probably produced maybe six, 
barrels that were little five gallon barrels. And then I moved to maybe another six that were 10 gallon barrels when I was first testing this process out. I had to determine what type of barrel was going to have what type of um, effect on the, on the liquid. So I aged it for six months before I even tasted it. So <laughs> talk about waiting and worrying. And I tasted it and I thought this is pretty good. And I didn't smell any off flavors. I didn't smell any methanol. I didn't smell, smell uh, propanol or, or anything that would, would cause problems with the liquid. And so I sent it off to a lab in California called ACL Labs, and they do gas chromatography and mass spectrometry, spectrometry testing. And I asked them to analyze the oak volatiles that were in the liquid, but also to analyze the, the higher alcohols that were in the liquid so that I could know what was toxic and what wasn't. And I, um, and I got a little creative when I sent them my samples and I sent them five other samples. I sent a bottle of Jack Daniels in a, in a, in a clear glass bottle with no name on it. I sent a bottle of Maker's Mark. I sent a bottle of Wild Turkey. And I sent a bottle of Pappy Van Winkle. And I had them run analysis on all of these liquids to see what was in those things. And sure enough, the reports came back and they're called spider graphs. And it's fascinating to see these things. They tell you what you're um, on a scale where you're, you are in the methanol ratio versus the others are these acetylaldehyde ratios. And um, I was shocked because we were lower than any of them. Um, and in terms of the volatile alcohols, the, 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 the dangerous alcohols, alcohols, the toxic alcohols, we were lower than any of them. And we'd only been aging for two years. And I started thinking, wow, we may be onto something here. But then the oak volatiles analysis is a few for all the guy called Black Tone. I'm sure this is boring as hell to your listeners. No, no, no. This is, this is the thing I think that people that are getting into this, everybody wants to know how their juice gets made. So I, I don't think this is boring at all. I think this is fascinating. The oak lactones, the fifferol glycol, um, uh, were off the charts, meaning we had more of the coconut, more of the, the saddle leather, more of the coconut, more of the butterscotch in our bourbon than any of these competitors who've been at this for 200 years. And I realized, wow, I've discovered something important. You can't age bourbon in Texas. Yes, you lose a lot of the product because a lot of these barrels would shatter when, when, when you heat a liquid up to 110 degrees, it expands. And I was filling all those barrels 100%. I wasn't going to waste any headspace, right? Sure. So I filled them all 100% and the barrels just popped. And I lost probably my first 18 barrels to uh, a hot Texas summer in their very first year in the Texas heat um, because of that. So then I had to do two things. One, I started working with my coopers to make thicker staves for the barrels. And then the second thing that I did is I, I lowered, I increased the amount of headspace. I would only fill these barrels to about 90, 95%. That way there was enough room in there that it weren't, wasn't crushing the staves, causing these things to blow up. So right, that was right. good learning. Took, took me a while, but I figured it out. That's awesome. So you, you kind of both things that the person from Buffalo Trace had wondered about, both of them came true. It, it, it did create a great product and there was some problems, it, a well-rounded uh, solution to the barrel problem. Did it hurt to not fill them all the way to the brim or did you just realize this is going to be the way we have to do it? I realized it was going to be the way we'd have to do it. And then I tasted the sixth barrel that I had aging. There was still some liquid left in it despite all the cracked staves. And I realized that was my recipe. That's what I was going to do. And, and I was going to make barrel number six over and over and over again and go to market as soon as possible. So then I actually hired my first employee, a guy named Fred Cook, and we did a double shift. He would work at night making bourbon. I would work 
paper in the day. And then I hired another guy. And now we were going around the clock, each of us doing eight hour shifts during an individual day on this little hundred gallon still that I uh, bought from Elmer T. Lee and Vendome Brass and Copperworks. And we worked, we worked 24 hours a day nonstop for the next three years to get to a point where we had bourbon we could actually sell. And then all of a sudden we realized, hey, it's ready. It tastes great. Let's take it to market. And we went, okay, who's going to have time to bottle all this shit? And none of us had time. The three of us working 24 hours a day. So we actually invited all of our neighbors and friends there in Stonewall, Texas, which is our sister city next to High Texas, to come on up for the, for a, a couple of days. And we would cook them barbecue and give them free beer um, and free bourbon um, if they would come up and help us bottle it. And that became such a fun event. Every single time that we would do a bottling, we would send out um, – emails to them and say, Hey, we're going to be rallying on this days. Can you come out? And, and all of a sudden it started, we started getting hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people that wanted to come do this. And today we have on our wait list, 18,000 people that have asked to come bottle bourbon at Garrison Brothers because it's fun. We give them a shot of courage in the, I mean, uh, give them breakfast in the morning, give them lunch in the afternoon and a shot of courage throughout the day, every half hour. And it keeps them motivated and happy. So it's a fun day. I was going to say, as soon as you started talking about that, I was like, I- I'll be there. If you need people to help you barrel, I- I'll be there next time I'm booked in Texas. I will. Uh, I'll stop by. I'll roll my sleeves up. As long as there's a shot of courage every half hour, I'll be there with bells on. But it sounds like I've got 18,000 people in front of me. Uh, I know a guy who can move you up on the list. <laughs> <laughs> very good. Very good. Uh, I'll, t- I'll, I'll do that. You don't, don't tempt me with that. You say you will, I will, I'll be there. You, you'll never get rid of me. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> so, and it th- was that young guns. Was that the first offering that young you guys were bottling? Yeah, it was a 375 milliliter bottle. Um, and it was just leftovers from some glass plant that they just happened to have on the shelf. And that was all I could afford at that point in time. I, I wanted to do a custom bottle and I always knew I wanted to do a custom bottle, but I just didn't have the money to do it in 2010. So the first release was on Texas Independence Day, which is March 2nd um, of, of the young gun. The, um, what you were just talking about, you bought the bottles that you could because of the money. Uh, I was talking to somebody else and it summed it up pretty well for me that making whiskey is like a reverse pyramid scheme. It, it's you just keep pumping money into it, it, it with, with the hope that something good comes out of it. Yeah, that's, that's a good allegory. I like that very much. It's very true. I mean, for five years, I was making bourbon and hadn't sold a single bottle yet. The only income that was coming into the business was t-shirt sales for people who want to come take a tour of my little, little, you know, shoebox sized distillery up on Great. the top of the hill. Well, that's the way a lot of the masters have got started though. Like um, Maker's Mark went years and years and years without selling anything. It was, it wasn't until, but they, they, he had a vision of what he wanted the juice to taste like. And it sounds like you have as well. So it all pays off. Yeah. It's been a good gig. I uh, tell people today I have the greatest job in the world and um, I get to make drink new bourbon, drink good bourbon with new friends every single night. So that's not too bad tonight. I'll be doing a bourbon dinner here in Naples, Florida at Shula Steakhouse. And even during COVID, we've got 40 guests coming and it's all sold out. And uh, I'm going to, I know I'm going to meet some really nice people and some really influential people. And I'm so excited. And I just get to drink with them all night and tell stories. That's what good bourbon's all about. And whiskey has some of the best stories. I, like I love sitting around and just listening to distillers 
go on about things that you're just kind of amazed by them. Uh, and you've been in it long enough now. What are some of the whiskey stories that you guys that you guys tell? Um, we try to do stories about good. We actually created a, a nonprofit 501c3 public charity uh, in 2017 because we realized that people would come to these bourbon dinners and they would spend $100 for their plate. And that cost them, that was the, the food cost for what they get served and the cost of the alcohol that's served to them as well. And we realized that if we upped it to $125, we could give $25 of that to a charity. We can make a difference somewhere. We can help somebody out. We could we could get a, a out of work bartender a check to him to keep them all afloat. We could um, we can do some neat things with with the revenues that we get just from sampling bourbon out. And so, Good Bourbon for a Good Cause was formed in 2017. Uh, we've raised somewhere in the neighborhood of, of nine hundred thousand dollars to date. That's um, awesome. Every, every time you buy a bottle of Garrison Brothers, uh, a portion of that is going to Good Bourbon for a Good Cause, so we can do good things. Uh, the first time we discovered what kind of good we could do was in 2017. Um, I think it was August 23rd, Hurricane Harvey came rolling across the Gulf of Mexico on a direct path toward Houston. And everybody was afraid that this was going to be bigger than Katrina. This was going to be a disastrous hurricane. It was a level uh, a um, four level, a level four hurricane and uh, category four, excuse me. And so we got on the phone. We, we I saw I saw a news report at night, and they were showing pictures of Port Aransas, Texas, uh, early early in the morning, and the whole roof had been show, stra- stretched off of a liquor store called Spanky's. Well, I know Spanky's. I've been to Spanky's. I've done tastings at Spanky's. I know Spanky's employees. I know their customers. I've been there a lot. And so it became very personal and I picked up the phone and I called my distillery director and I said, how many barrels did you fill this morning? He said, nine barrels. And I said, okay, I want you to get your calculator out. And after the angel share, I want you to tell me, Hey, after the angel share losses are calculated, which is 13% annually, I want you to tell me exactly how many, uh, 375 milliliter bottles you think we can get from those nine barrels because we're going to take those barrels and we're going to those bottles and we're going to auction them off the customers won't get to drink that bourbon for five years but i think that they'll they'll make a contribution and there were two different contribution levels to get a bottle you come in at a hundred dollars or five hundred dollars and i can't remember exactly how we structured it because it was so long ago but um we set up a website and my, my marketing director set up a website and i wrote a little um, a, a blog post saying, please support um, our efforts to support those in need that are experiencing Hurricane Harvey. We're going to give money to a group called Team Rubicon, which is an amazing outfit. They take veterans that are having a hard time reassimilating into society. Um, and, and that's hard to come back from Iraq and come to America. That's transition. And um, so a lot of people are having a hard time with it. They take these folks and they put them in the um, adventure mode where they have to go save people. And it gives them a will to, 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 to go on. And it's, it's a great organization. I love what they're doing at Team Rubicon. Um, by 36 hours after we launched the website, we had raised $146,000 for Team Rubicon. And That's they amazing. Had 
They had boats in the water that we paid, paid for less than 72 hours after, after that effort. So it was really cool to see that we could do that. Over 700 people donated to that cause, and we only had 600 bottles, but people kept donating anyway. It was, and, and, and we asked for a maximum of $500, and they were giving $5,000. It was, it was really cool to see what good bourbon can do. That's awesome. And that's I, why we started. That's the narrative. I think that's the narrative that fixes every problem that we've talked about so far. Uh, it's it, good bourbon can do good things. I, I think that turns over any law from 75 years ago that doesn't make sense. Uh, let's hope so. Somebody will see the light eventually, right? I'm just saying, Garrison for governor, it sounds good. <laughs> So uh, you guys have been gracious enough to send me a couple bottles. I was wondering if you would uh, uh, have a drink with me and walk me through what I, what I might be tasting as I sip some of this delicious Garrison Brothers uh, bourbon. I just happen to have a bottle right here. What a, what a oh, coincidence. That is handy. What you, which one are you opening? This black wax bottle? Uh, yes, sir. That is Garrison Brothers small batch bourbon. Oh, it that smells what, amazing. That's what I'm pouring too. I've got that dinner tonight, so I can't go in whole hog, but I'll certainly have a sip with you. <laughs> this is Garrison Brothers Small Batch Bourbon Whiskey. Um, every week, Donis pulls about 50 barrels from our inventory of about 38,000 barrels. And he pulls the ones that he thinks will probably be ready. Um, it's a real secret as to where they're located. Uh, Donis won't even tell me where all the barrels are located because <laughs> we have about, we have five, five aging barns today. We have 36 transatlantic shipping containers that are 40 feet long and eight feet wide. And they're all filled with bourbon barrels. And each of those different aging environments has an effect on the product. So our cowboy bourbon, which is uh, cask strength, right out of the barrel into the bottle, has chunks of wood and charcoal floating in it. You can actually see it if you shake the bottle up because it's, it's literally right out of the barrel into the, wood, into the bottle. And remember that has a seen oxygen for five years so as soon as you open up the cowboy bourbon it's the aroma just comes flowing out the top of the bottle but those barrels are in a very secretive location and donis will not tell me where they are um i'm sure he would if i really asked but frankly i don't want to know as long as i've got donis i'm okay uh, if I don't have Donna, I'm in deep shit because I don't know if I have to start producing all this bourbon myself. I've, I've been a sales guy for the past three years, so it's been kind of tough for me to, to be involved in the production. But this is a combination of about 55 barrels that Donna has pulled from his barns that he thinks yield caramel, butterscotch, vanilla, uh, licorice flavors, some clove. Um, and I think it does too. This is the 2019 and it's just kind of this great, rich bouquet of uh, um, elderberry. Oh, the, the cinnamon. Yeah, the nose. Not mad. Oh, man. The, there's a volume. There's, there's like a, there's layers to the nose of this. Yep. And the best part about it, what we, what we strive for more than anybody else and what we're very proud of is the, the what's called in bourbon terms, the mouthfeel or the texture. The Japanese call it umami. Uh, when you drink this down, and I recommend that you put a little bit on your tongue and treat it like an M&M. Uh, if you've got an M&M on your tongue, you just let it sit there. All of a sudden, your mouth is going to start salivating because your mouth wants to to chew up that M&M and your mouth is going to be like, come on, let's go. Let's let this guy go. But you keep that M&M on, M &M on your tongue as long as you can and, and then swallow. 
because that's that's going to cause your glands to produce saliva. The saliva helps cut it down. It's got um, it's got your saliva has uh, chemicals in it that help make things taste sweeter. So that's what I recommend. Salud, Jesse. All right. Cheers. Do you feel the saliva? Do mm-hmm. you feel your, your gum secreting? Mm-hmm. Isn't that amazing? Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness. It completely does leave it right there on the edge. And then like the rest of your mouth, you can feel it marching towards the front as, as if to come on, come on, bring it on back. Exactly. Right. Oh my God. That is amazing. That is so good. And you do it before proof or 47% alcohol by volume. The youngest barrel used in that bottle was uh, probably four years old. It's so balanced. You're getting notes of everything. I mean, good Lord, you get the, you get the fruit, you get the oak for sure. The oak's in there hard. Is that from the heat of the, of Texas? Yep. Exactly. It's delicious. Uh, it, it's, I can see, I can see why this immediately jumped to the front of the line in terms of, of the bourbon community buzz. Cause it's got all the flavors that you can get from maybe less extreme temperatured States. And it's like heightened. It's taken all of the all of those flavors, and I, I guess where it's just roasting at that high temperature. It, that's my guess. I have no clue what I'm talking about, but that, that's what it, it tastes amazing. I can tell. I know that much. Well, there's actually a legitimate reason that this bottle runs about eighty dollars in liquor stores versus normal bourbons that are somewhere in between twenty and thirty. Um, we lose thirteen percent of the contents of each barrel every single year. So when these barrels are picked from the barn and mixed together into our tank uh, before it's bottled, we're going to get maybe 25% of the original liquid that was in those barrels. So um, when you're buying Garrison Brothers, you're not just paying for the liquid that's in that bottle. You're paying for the loss of the liquid that happened over the past five years. Right, right. It, well, it is it is phenomenal. It's worth every penny. This is, it's, man, it's so good. I, I, I'm, I, I know I'm supposed to talk. It's just, I'm enjoying this. This is, uh, I, I, I could sit here and just soak this in. So let's just uh, remain here in silence. And uh, <laughs> Everybody at home, pick up a glass. We're just going to drink whiskey and enjoy it for a second. You can join us. And if you're not a whiskey drinker, this is going to be the most boring podcast you've ever listened to. <laughs> they've not, they've not come with us this far. If they don't have at least an inkling of interest in bourbon. <laughs> Wouldn't that suck for the person that just keeps waiting for us to get to the thing they thought the podcast was about? <laughs> when are they going to get to the Highway 66 murders? When are they going to stop talking about this bourbon? Have you ever have you ever um, been to a wine tasting at a, at a restaurant? Mm-hmm. Always cracks me up because they'll have all these wines in front of you and you come in and you're thirsty and you really want to drink. But they won't let you drink the damn things, and they're right there in front of you until they get to each each different wine. I'm like, right. I want to try them all right now. Boom, 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 boom. I don't want to sit and wait. Thank you. 
Uh, I went to a wine tasting with my uncle one time and you know, you're the polite thing. You're supposed to take a sip and spit, take a sip and spit. Uh, he was just downing them and around glass number six or seven, my mom was like, you know, you're supposed to be spitting the wine out. He goes, I paid a hundred dollars to be here. I'm drinking every one of these sons of bitches. <laughs> I like him already. He's a great guy. He just, uh, he sent me photos the other day. He bagged a nine pointer last weekend he's got a little plot of land in virginia and he, he it's got a, a, a crest uh on top of a hill so he set him up stand and he just sits there on saturday and waits for him to come to him well i'd ask for more venison but my freezer's completely full oh yes i i got quite a bit myself I've, the outdoor freezer's full i'm sure i could cram some in the inside freezer if she'll let me that is uh, absolutely amazing. Um, I believe you sent me another bottle as well. Uh, we're running a little low on time, but I'm, I'm, I'm game for another sip if you are. Sure. This is the single barrel, I believe. Yes, this, is, this is the single. Uh, single barrel. That should say on the side exactly what number the barrel was that that came from. And barrel the number. barrel nine five three two bottle number two. Oh my god i i this is a beautiful the, the production value of your bottle sir is also phenomenal like the shape hey. of the bottle the wax that you've used it almost hurts me to open this um my friend well i won't call him a friend my an acquaintance of mine is a guy named john paul de joria who founded um uh uh, what's the damn tequila company called? Um, anyway, he founded a tequila company that's huge, and he just sold that tequila company to another company for somewhere in the neighborhood of like $3 billion. Um, it's not Proximo. What the hell is the name of the tequila? Anyway, uh, he said that his investment in the glass was worth every penny from a marketing standpoint, regardless of how much your bottles cost. Uh, consumers will happily eat that cost if it's presented to them in a way that they, they're impressed with. So I've always wanted to do custom bottles, and I've always been happy with my original bottle, which was designed after an 1800s Jack Daniels bottle. Um, but this time we kind of went whole hog on it. Oh, yes. I mean, that is... Yeah, that, so that's our old style bottle. The new style bottle is, this, is, is what you have in your other hand. Exactly. Now, all of our bottles are going to look like the one you have in your left hand now. They are beautiful. It's an absolutely beautiful bottle. I mean, you guys have not spared any expense here, like down to the engraving on the star in the GB, like the little details that go into that. That is beautiful. It's even got my signature engraved in the very bottom of it, which is kind of hilarious because I've signed in my lifetime, I've signed over 250,000 bottles. Um, I, I, <laughs> My rule of thumb is that I will sign every single bottle before it goes out the door. And you can actually see the signature on this one. This is from 2019. Oh, that's my awesome. staff is kind of taking on the same role. If I'm out of town doing um, sales trips like I'm doing now, uh, my staff will sign the bottles in my, on my behalf. That is awesome. There it is right there. That's a beautiful thing. So what are we going to get different from the single barrel? Is it going to be small batch heightened or, or are there separate notes? So, what we do is Don is constantly looking for those 55 bottles that he's going to use in a small batch every week. And 
if he tastes one and it doesn't have that same caramel butterscotch vanilla uh, texture and taste to it, then he's going to set that bottle aside. If it's, if it's, if it tastes like cloves or licorice or nutmeg or cinnamon, that become that bottle, that barrel gets set aside for our single barrel program. And so the unusual flavors are going to be in your single barrel. So if you like Garrison Brothers small batch bourbon, the, the, the one we just tasted a minute ago, and you want something different, pick up the single barrel because the single barrel is usually dramatically different from the small batch taste. And I don't know what bottle you have in front of you there, and I don't know what barrel it came from. Um, so I don't have a bottle here to tell you more about it because every single bottle is unique. Every single barrel is unique. So I, I couldn't I couldn't tell you what you're about to taste. Well, the flavors just off the top of it are are like you just said, it's a complete departure from the last one. You're getting you're getting a a more pronounced almost almost mapley, but but not quite. You've still got your butterscotch and vanilla and a lot of caramel in there. It's it's just like it's blowing up out of the top of it in in a very solid freaking nose i think those the 9000 series uh we had ordered a lot of barrels from black swan cooperage up in minnesota so that probably has come from a black swan cooperage barrel all right well i'm going in salute cheers that's so good oh man I'm glad you like it. oh it's delightful it's so good dan it's smoky there's more smoke on this one. Oh, oh my Goodness. <laughs> I assume that's not barrel proof. Does it say 94 proof on the side? Yes. Yes. Yep. 94 proof single barrel. Yeah. We also do single barrel um, cask strength as well. And oh, dear so Lord. Know what that, so it's tough to buy bottles for that because we never know what we're going to get. Um, you know, you pull the barrel out, you, uh, you take the proof of it, and then you put it into a bottle. And you have to, we have to handwrite the proof on the side of the bottle because every single one's different. That is amazingly good. Uh, what is the highest proof that you produce? Um, the original cowboy bourbon that we did was from 11 barrels that had aged, I think, four years. And there was hardly any liquid in it. It was like pouring out molasses into the bottles. Um, and uh, that was 145 proof, if I remember. Oh, see, the longer I've been doing this, the more I just gravitate towards that high, that the flavors that come out of them, especially if they're in the right year range. Like, I, I think when you get into your 18 and up years that it gets a little too syrupy for me. But but the flavors that you get out of that high proof when it's between eight and 12. So, so good. Uh, well, sir, you have been beyond uh, kind with your time today. Uh, I want to thank you so much for walking us through uh, the story of Garrison Brothers. Uh, I, I love the politics that went into this episode and, and everything that gives people something to think about the next time they go to the liquor store. If you don't like something that's happening, it's America. Challenge it. It's, it's your right to say I don't like it and to figure out a way to make it what you want it to be. Well said. And uh, before you go, I, I always ask everybody, if there is a Mount Rushmore of distillers, who would you put on your Mount Rushmore? Elmer T. Lee would be at the very top. Uh, I got to meet Elmer shortly before he passed away. And he was the most humble, gentle, kindest, sweetest man. Uh, he, he, I don't think he even realized what kind of impact he had on the 
bourbon whiskey community during his lifetime. Uh, he was the, I think he was at Buffalo Trace for 50 years and um, he's created some of the best bourbon whiskeys in the world. And he's an icon. I have, uh, I have tried to model my business exactly like his business with a lot of different varieties, and a lot of specialty bourbons, and a lot of rare bourbons. If we're not doing something new every damn day, then, then we're going to get boring. And we want to keep, we want to maintain interest in Garrison Brothers. And the way we do that is by trying things that nobody's tried before. Uh, just for example, um, one project that we have underway right now is um, champagne casks, aging our bourbon in previously, in casks that were previously aging champagne. And nice. uh, what's going to be fun about that, Donis and I have this, this, this plan to actually uh, pump CO2 into the bottles to create a little bit of carbonation so that when you pull that cork off of the bottle, it's just like a bubbly. Oh, that's awesome. And all the bubbles come rising up. When you put it in the glass, you're going to have a bunch of head on top of it that's nothing but the carbonated bubbles. And we think that would be a really cool bourbon. So um, we're working on that now, and I'm not supposed to tell anybody that. Well, we'll keep it just between us. (laughs) Sure you will. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much for your time, sir. I really do appreciate it. Uh, Everything you're doing is so innovative since the first day you started. I I, I think that's why you're being as successful as you are, is when you push the boundaries, good things happen. So wish you nothing but more success, Dan. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. You too, Jesse. Thanks for having me on. It's been an honor. Of course. Thank you so much, sir. Have a great day. There you have it, guys. There is today's episode. We want to thank Dan Garrison of Garrison Brothers for being on the show. He was really just great to talk to. The best part about doing this is when you get somebody that cares so much about what they do and what they produce that it creates a good conversation. And I think you got that today. I think Dan is one of those guys that he got into it for the right reason. He does it for the right reason. And that's why he's so successful at it. So thank you so much, Dan, for being on the show. And don't don't invite me to Texas and think I won't show up. Next time you bottle, I, I'll be there. You give me a shot of courage every 30 minutes with breakfast and lunch, you, you know I'll be there. So thank you so much for that. I, I'll take you up on it. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening to the show today. If you liked what you heard, hit subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on. If you didn't like it today, send me a nasty email. I don't care. Tell me. Tell me what you didn't like. I'll gladly talk to you about it. Send me a note. Let me know who you want to hear. If you've enjoyed this so far, but you think there's an untapped distillery that I need to talk to, shoot me a note. I'll gladly talk to them. uh, Beauty of this is I like talking to everybody. If you make good whiskey, I want to talk to you. So... Thank you again, Dan. Thank you again, everybody, for listening. Thank you, Will Jones, for the music. My name's Jesse Jones. This is the Bourbon Showdown Podcast. We'll see everybody next week. Happy New Year, everybody. Let's raise our glasses and kick some asses in 2021. I'll see you guys next week. Bourbon.